Hello and welcome to Habemus Papam, episode 160, Callistus II. Dear brothers and sisters, Annuncio Vobis. Annuncio Vobis. Annuncio Vobis Gaudium Magnum. Gaudium Magnum. Gaudium Magnum. Habemus Papam. Now, last week we heard about the death of Pope Gelasius II, who was still in a struggle against an antipope and the Emperor Henry V. Now, what I didn't mention last week was that on Pope Gelasius II's deathbed at the great monastery of Cluny in France, he pointed out a man he thought should be his successor, the Archbishop Guido, or Guy, of Vienne. So the unlucky Archbishop was summoned, and when he reached Cluny, the members of the papal court and the cardinals present there elected him pope and then wrote to Rome to have the rest of them ratify their decision. Guy of Vienne was born in the late 11th century and was named Archbishop of Vienne in France in 1088. What we know about his episcopacy before his election is actually a little disappointing. Apparently for several years, he was in a big fight with St. Hugh, the saintly bishop of Grenoble and the friend of St. Bruno. Guy apparently wanted some of St. Hugh's territory, and he basically took it from him. So St. Hugh appealed to a friend who happened to be the Pope, Pope Urban II, but Guy bribed the Roman Curia to get them on to his side, and eventually Paschal II had to settle it with a compromise, but Guy never seemed to let this go. We next hear about Guy during the controversy surrounding Paschal II's agreement with Henry V, the so-called privilegium which seemed to repudiate all the work the reforming popes had done to remove the ecclesiastical sphere from the imperial or the secular one. Guy was on the forefront of denouncing Paschal's actions. In fact, when Paschal repudiated the privilegium himself, he wrote to Guy informing him of his decision. Guy himself got the bishops of France to come together and condemn the privilegium. Which brings us up to 1119 and Guy's being elected in Cluny by some of the cardinals' pope. Guy had himself crowned Pope Callistus II in his cathedral in Vienne, even before news got back that the cardinals in Rome had ratified the decision of the cardinals in France. But eventually they did, and actually, surprisingly, some of the major competing factions in Rome came together to support Callistus II. So if you remember from past episodes, we have a delicate situation going on in the church. Henry V wants the right to appoint bishops, the right of investiture that we've talked about for a while now, and the reforming strain of popes say certainly not. And furthermore, the spiritual power is higher than the temporal power, which means you answer to us, not the other way around. This we've seen has been translated into geopolitics with the emperor in the north of Italy pressuring Rome, which was traditionally supported by the Normans in the south. But now with Guy, we have a wild card thrown into the mix, which is probably one of the reasons the cardinals back in Rome put aside their differences to support him. Calistus II was not only French, he was related to a lot of French royalty and widely respected throughout France. So how could we bring the French into play in what had been a Norman and imperial dynamic? Well, Callistus, upon election, did not go to Rome right away. He stayed in France to try and use the French side of things to change the relationship with the emperor. He called a council in Toulouse to help combat heretics who were starting to pop up in southern France, and then he moved to Reims, where he called a major council to help reconcile things with the Emperor Henry V. The meeting in Reims was going to be a big deal, an attempt to bring to conclusion the whole investiture crisis, which had started during the reign of Henry's father, Henry IV. Callistus had some trusted advisors meet with Henry V ahead of time, and they worked out a compromise. 
If Henry gave up his claim to investiture, that is his own power over the appointment of bishops, and returned church property, the Pope would restore to Henry property which Henry himself had lost during the struggle. Galicis opened the meetings in Rems, but it only met for a couple of days before the Pope left again to try and finalize the negotiations with the Emperor. He met with the Emperor in the French town of Mouzon, which is today on the border with Belgium, and I probably mispronounced that. Not Belgium, Mouzon. He discovered that Henry was already there with a large army, which he had brought along to intimidate the Pope. Now, Henry didn't out and out reject the deal he had made. But he waffled and delayed, hoping perhaps to extract a few more concessions from the Pope. And with a large army there intimidating him, perhaps that might work. So after a couple of days, Callistus left, fearful of the army and wary that Henry was going to try and play some sort of trick and return to Rems. Once back in Rems, Callistus excommunicated the emperor and the anti-pope, who was still hanging out in Rome, if you remember from earlier, And he did a couple of things of note while in France. He confirmed and gave official approval for St. Norbert's new order, the Premonstratensians. And he met with Henry I, the King of England, and helped to bring about peace between England and France. Then he went on to Cluny, where he formally canonized St. Hugh of Cluny. We met a couple episodes ago. And then finally, in the spring of 1120, Callistus made his way to Rome. In June of 1120, he arrived in Rome and was formally crowned in St. Peter's Basilica. The anti-pope had fled Rome, and Callistus gathered together some of the Norman troops in southern Italy to capture him. And after he was captured, he then made him ride into Rome on a camel backwards and then locked him away in a monastery. He then toured southern Italy, and when he was down there, he got a new letter from Henry V in Germany. Now, it turns out the situation in Germany was not getting any better. The the bishops were turning more and more to the Pope's side against the king. Now, you hear that in today's context and you think big deal. But back then in Germany, the bishops held not only spiritual but political and military power. Even bishops who were before had backed the anti-Pope were turning against the king as the prestige and the power of the Pope had increased. There were even armed skirmishes and threats of rebellion in Germany. And it got so bad that Henry decided he needed to settle this conflict once and for all. His letter asked for the Pope to call a council to settle things to which the Pope agreed. And after several false starts, finally on September 8, 1122, a group of German bishops and papal representatives met in the city of Worms. And in Worms, a deal was made. It was called by history the Concordat of Worms. And here's what they agreed to. From the Pope's side, he agreed to let all Episcopal elections in Germany, but not in Italy and Burgundy, take place in the presence of the Emperor. And if things were contentious, the emperor could weigh in, but only if things were contentious. Likewise, the emperor could invest the new bishop with the scepter, which was the symbol of the secular power, which the bishop held as a feudal lord. But from the emperor's perspective, he agreed to drop the demand to invest the new bishop with the crozier and ring, which were symbols of the spiritual power of the bishop. And he agreed to free elections of the bishop without imperial control which basically means the Pope has much more say, and to restore property taken from the church during the conflict. Now, this was a big deal. We've been fighting the investiture crisis for several episodes now, and it's torn the church apart, country against country, Pope against emperor, Pope against anti-Pope. So when the news reached Rome of the Concordat of Worms, the Pope decided to ratify it as solemnly as possible by calling a massive ecumenical council. This would be the first ecumenical council held in the West and the first council called since the Council of Constantinople, the fourth Council of Constantinople in 870, which was centuries ago. 
And it's going to be the 10th ecumenical council. And we'll go down in history under the name of Lateran I, the first council of the Lateran. Lateran I met on three days, March 18th, 27th, and April 6th of 1123. It was the most representative and well-attended ecumenical council to date, with 300 bishops and 600 abbots attending, and thousands of other priests, deacons, monks, and representatives. The council ratified the agreement made at Worms and declared that, in accordance with the decision of Pope Stephen, we declare that lay persons, no matter how devout they may be, have no authority to dispose of anything belonging to the church. But according to the apostolic canon of the supervision of all ecclesiastical affairs, belongs to the bishop, who shall administer them conformably to the will of God. If therefore any prince or other layman shall arrogate to himself the right of disposition, control, or ownership of ecclesiastical goods or properties, let him be judged guilty of sacrilege. The council promulgated several other canons, many of which dealt with clerical celibacy, the selling of church property, simony, and the crusaders in the Holy Land. Now, along with the reform agenda, the First Lateran Council also canonized the Bavarian bishop, St. Conrad of Constance. And with that, we mark the end of the investiture crisis. At least in the broad overview of papal history, this marks a convenient end to it. We could say that there is still some aspect of the investiture crisis up until the 20th century, but we'll get to that much later. But as we'll see, secular rulers will still use their authority to try and get the people they want made bishop, even Henry V in Germany. But from a macro perspective, this really signifies the end of the major conflict between the emperor and the pope. Papal prestige is going to rise from here, at least for a time, until we get to really the heights of the medieval papacy, while imperial power and prestige is going to decrease. Again, for now. Now, we don't have too much more to say about Callistus II. He died on December 13, 1124, and he was buried in the Basilica of St. John Lateran, and he will be succeeded by Honorius II, but only after another fight in a contentious conclave. But more about that next time. Thanks for listening to Habemus Papam. You can check out the rest of the Catholic Bites podcast at catholicbitespodcast.com or find us on iTunes. Thank you and God bless you.